Well, we've been looking at the final words of Jesus, okay? Mark, are you excited about this? Okay, like finally, or we got to the one you like? I don't know, we'll have to talk later. Okay, we are, we are more than halfway through. Maybe that's why he's excited. We're in the home stretch now. Uh, and today, uh, today we're looking at the sixth church that's mentioned in Revelation, Uh, These are the final words of Jesus that are written to the seven churches. Uh, Let's pull up that map. You've seen it. You've been familiar with it. We started at Ephesus and went around that horseshoe. Now we're landing in a place called Philadelphia. Um, And so last week we looked at the church in Sardis, which was the sleeping church. They had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus actually says in reality, they're actually quite dead. Today, we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia, but before we read the passage, I want to give you a little bit of background on the city of Philadelphia, Um, not the famous city here in America called Philadelphia. Anybody ever been to Philly? Okay, five of us. That's awesome. Uh, You should go. If you get a chance, you should go. Uh, It's an awesome place with a lot of history here in America. Uh, It's where they signed the Declaration of Independence, where they signed the Constitution, um, and and those sorts of things where our founding fathers were meeting. So it's really awesome. But today we're actually talking about the city in the ancient times that we actually have the name Philadelphia in Pennsylvania from. Okay. It's in a modern day area of Turkey and the name is Alisir. If you'll pull up that picture, it's just a kind of picture of the cityscape of what it looks like today. Uh, essentially, there's a mountain range that pretty much surrounds three sides of it. And it's in an area where it would be on a fault line or very near a fault line uh, so that in times of earthquakes and tremors, they would have experienced a lot of trouble. They would have experienced devastation. They would have had to rebuild often. In fact, there are historians, ancient historians, that write and say that in the year 17 AD, this is during Jesus' lifetime when he was yet still a child, during 17 AD, the the largest earthquake that was known to mankind happened and rippled through this area as well as all of really much, all the areas on the map that we see in Western Turkey, what would be Western Turkey today. So uh, they had a lot of rebuilding. They would experience times of destruction. It was destroyed again in AD 60. John is writing this letter somewhere around AD 90. Okay, and he he is writing to the church because Jesus has told him to. The city back then would have been named or known as Little Athens. The reason for that would have been because of the architecture and the magnificence of the temples there. The city was insecure, though, and it was also in a place of uncertainty. Have you ever experienced tremors? Like an actual tremor? Anybody here been part? Okay, so a few of us have been in places like that. Uh, it's, it is absolutely mind-blowing what can be shaken when you think that everything is stable. So I want you to just have that understanding in your mind as we go into this, because really what we've been trying to do is look at what a spiritual application we can take away from this individualized, personalized letter that was given to the church. 
essentially the thought that I have is immediately I go to, you know what, maybe only two or three of you in this room have ever been in a place where you experienced an actual earthly tremor. But I believe every single one of us have been in a place of uncertainty and destabilizing nature when it comes to our spiritual life. We've had hard times hit us unexpectedly. We've had things happen. We've had people leave our life. We've had betrayals. We've had all of these sorts of things that can cause us to feel shaken. And I think there's an incredible message that Jesus wants to give to the church then, but also to the church now. And that really, it, it comes from the question of what do you do when your world is shaken? There are people, I would hope that some of my family members, besides my parents, listen to these messages or are in churches. I have some that are unsaved, many that are unsaved, I should say, some that are saved. But my father's sister, she's an alcoholic, has been for years, worked in the restaurant industry, starts her morning with a large bottle of bourbon next to her coffee, pours it in and stays drunk all day long. Her world has been shaken by divorce and all different sorts of things that happened in her life. And she continues to turn to something, but not to the right thing. I give that as an example, but it breaks my heart. And I hope that the Lord saves her before she dies. She's had cancer, uh, a cancer diagnosis given to her several times. Uh, if you think of my family at any point, pray for my Aunt Ginger, that the Lord would save her. But I think of people like her who turn to all of the stuff, all of the things that we can turn to, material wealth and all the things that we might find some stability in, even human relationships. And I think about those who then in the moment of being shaken, truly turn in the right direction to the Lord. The truth is every single one of us will experience tremors and be shaken in our life. The question is, what will we do when that happens? So Revelation chapter three gives us this message that Jesus, again, is dictating to John to have John write. Verse seven, it says this, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and I pause there to remind you, if, you, if you're just joining us in the series, um, remember this is not Jesus coming down to visit John to tell him to write a physical letter to a spiritual or supernatural being that is an angel. That word angel translated there would be messenger and we understand it to be the leader or the pastor of the church. So Jesus is saying, John, write this letter and send it to the pastor and make sure that the, these words get read before the body of Christ. So it says here, here's what Jesus says. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse eight, it says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It's an interesting start to this message. There are some things in there, if you go back to verse seven, that 
actually I want to highlight this morning, when he says that he is the holy one, the true one, another word translated true would be honest. The people in Philadelphia had experienced these tremors and these earthquakes, and now the Roman government had actually given them a tax-free five years. Somebody say amen if you, okay? Because the, the emperor wanted them to be able to rebuild the city. So he said, I won't tax you for five years. But then other people came through and took back the word that was given. So Jesus immediately is setting himself apart from their history, saying, I know people have lied to you. I know bad stuff has been done to you, but I am honest. I am true. I am faithful. I love you. This is what he's trying to communicate. Verse eight, he says, I know your works. I love the clarity that just those four words offer. If you live in a place of fear of what God knows about your life, you might be a little scared. Uh, he knows my works. But if we are living and doing what God asks us to do, we can say with confidence, God, you know my works. And there's, a, there's two different perspectives there. He says something interesting here about an open door that no one can shut. You've got little power you've, and you've kept my word and not denied my name. There's something that he says in verse nine about the synagogue of Satan. Now we talked about this in a previous message to one of the churches. It only shows up two or three times at most in scripture. Essentially what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is you've got to think about this. They were Jews and now they have become Christians. There's a time in the church's history where they fellowshiped in peace together, but then bad stuff started happening and people started letting power go to their head. And then when the Christians would show up to the synagogue, they would be turned away. In fact, their names would be scratched off the list and said, you know what, you can't come in here anymore because they believed that Jesus was the savior of the world, that he was their own Messiah, and that he was the one that offered them salvation. So Jesus is saying to those who are not acting or not being the true children of mine, I am going to cause them to bow down at your feet. He says, I'm gonna get their attention and help them to know that you are the one that I love. Now he says something there about the key of David in verse seven. The only other reference to the key of David, um, which doesn't show up in this version, but it's in the ESV version. Uh, it says, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. The only other reference is in Isaiah 22, verse 22. And this is a prophecy about Jesus having the key of David. Ancient cities were locked, listen to me, from the inside. There was no exterior keyhole. I want you to just think about this for a second. When you read the Bible, you cannot think about modern America and all of the trappings that we have in modern technology. A walled city with fortifications would have had a gate that had bars that came down. I'm sure you've seen a movie or seen art you know, and, and drawings and renderings of what they looked like back then. There are some, some still that exist today that have those uh, iron bars that come down to prevent any type of attack. But I want you to understand something. There's one person 
who's part of the garrison of troops that guards the city, who holds the key to unlock the latch and to remove it, to open it up. It is not like you've walked to the front door of this church like I did at 6.30 this morning and put my key in the door. The only way to get in to the city would have been from the inside to be granted access. So think about this for a second, because he says, I have the key of David. A key represents authority, does it not? If you give me a key to your house while you're on vacation, you've given me not only authority at your house, but you've given me access to your house. The key that you hold in your purse or in your pocket today gives you access to your vehicle or to your house. Listen to me, Matthew 16, listen to the words of Jesus as he says this in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. He's talking to Peter. You know Peter, he's done a lot of bad stuff in his life. Jesus still loves him. This is pretty awesome. It should be comforting to some of you. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The truth is a small key can open an enormous door. I want you to just think in a practical, real world sense and make that spiritual application today. John, Jesus tells John in Revelation 1 that he holds the keys to death and Hades. We understand that during the time where he died and before he resurrected, that he retrieved those keys. Listen to me. That means he has access and he has authority to those things. Let me give you a sidebar. Hades should not be um, translated in all places as hell. It is the entire realm of the dead. In the understanding of the ancients, this word Hades meant that when you die, all spirits. So when God himself through Jesus says, I hold the keys to death and to all those who have departed, the wicked and the righteous, we've got to understand he has authority. I also have to think that one of the places that would have been damaged during the earthquakes that they experienced would have definitely been areas of weakness in their home where they had doors of access that rubble had filled in or had broken down. So the key of David means that Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of King David. The prophecies throughout scripture are very clear that one day a king will sit on the throne of David and be in his lineage who will be the promised Messiah. So he has all authority and he gives access to whomever he wishes. He has the power to open the door that no one can shut. No trouble you face can shut the door that God has opened in your life. I want you to think with, with your thinking cap on this morning and he has the power to shut the door and when he does, it will be impenetrable. There's nothing that you can do to open a door that God himself has shut. Now here we understand that Jesus in his words to John for this church is saying that he is giving access to the kingdom to these people who are in the church in Philadelphia. 
He says, I've set before you in verse eight an open door no one can shut. Verse eight also says he's got, he, he sees in them that they've got little power, but they've kept his word and they've not denied his name. Like Smyrna, Philadelphia receives no warnings, no condemnations, no threats, no judgments. It was free from Christ's criticism. Verse 10 says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Everybody say hour of trial. How long? An hour, okay? How long is an hour? How many seconds? are? No, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. So an hour of trial, what does that mean? It means a short time of testing and trial. I think sometimes we think that the season that we're in since it has lasted longer than we thought, is going to last a lifetime. But Jesus says that there is an hour of trial that's coming on the whole world, but I will keep you from it. To try those, it says, who dwell on the earth. So they did not deny God's word or the name of Jesus. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. Can somebody say amen? Amen. So this word or this phrase that says, keep you from, I will keep you from, it would be like me keeping my child from running out in front of a car that's moving. It's a defensive move that grabs and pulls back. So he says, I will keep you from this hour of trial. Those who are obedient and endure will be saved from some disasters. So it is only a season and we serve a God who is sovereign over every season of our life. Let me give you a quick thought about endurance and suffering because this church had obviously endured suffering, not just being in a place where they would have to rebuild and that sort of thing, lose their livelihood periodically and stuff like that. But now they're facing the fact that they'd love to fellowship in the synagogue, but the synagogue now has booted them out, written, taken their names off the roll and said, you can't come here, you can't be here. They've had to endure a lot and they've suffered a lot. Your suffering can either be a greenhouse or a graveyard for your faith. A greenhouse obviously would be a place where life is present and where life is fostered, but a graveyard is really dead, <laughs> okay? It's depressing. There's nothing there except for tombstones and, and bones. So life doesn't exist in a graveyard except for just brief moments where we say goodbye. We have an opportunity, I want you to hear me church, you individually have an opportunity to allow your suffering to be a greenhouse and to let God produce fruit in you during the time of your suffering and what you endure or you can throw up your hands and say, pity poor me, I don't know why God hates me, I guess I'll just go eat worms. <laughs> okay, sorry, some of you got that, some of you didn't. It can either be a greenhouse or a graveyard. Don't let the suffering that you are experiencing, or you say, pastor, I'm not experiencing any suffering. My husband's got a job, I've got a job, everything's good. The relationships are great in my life. Nobody's sick in my family. Maybe you don't have any suffering, but tomorrow you might. And so that's, that's the truth of the word of God is that we should not allow our suffering to kill our joy or to kill our faith because those things should stand without 
without our circumstances. Joy isn't based on your circumstance and neither should your faith be. I wanna tell you what the promise of God is that was given to Israel in Isaiah 43. It helps really keep this point in, in front of us. He says this, God is talking to Israel and he says this, and I, I just want you to hear these words, let them soak into your spirit today. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the deep waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overtake or overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, he didn't say you would be exempt from fire, but he says, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Fear not for I am with you. Somebody ought to shout hallelujah. That's a good word. God gave it, obviously, it has the application that it did then for the people of Israel and for his holy chosen people. But now we're grafted into the family. This promise belongs to us as well, that he loves us, that he honors us, that we are precious in his eyes. So when you and I experience pain and suffering, we've got to let the truth of God's word win out. He loves you and you're precious in his sight. The city of Philadelphia got its name from a king who was giving the, given, giving the name to the city as a result of the love that he had for his brother. Philadelphia, we understand today, even has the big um, monument, if you've ever seen it. It says love, it's got the red letters, L-O, and then the V-E underneath it, because we call it the city of brotherly love. Philadelphos literally means to love your brother. So this city here, I want you to understand this. They were enduring things and having to walk through stuff and they needed to be convinced that God loved them. You and I need to understand that God loves us. In fact, I would say it like this. You can endure anything when Jesus is your everything. When he's the source of what you've got going on in your life, when he's the source of the hope that you need and the joy that you need, when he is your everything, you can go through anything. Isaiah 43, I just read, tells us that much. So verse 11 says this, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. When we understand the English translation there, hold fast, and we see that no one will take your crown, it would be like somebody, like a little kid saying, this is my toy and you're not having it, okay? Have you ever tried to pry something out of the hands of a child? That's what Jesus is saying here. In fact, the, the phrase hold fast literally is talking about ship's knots that would be tied or moored up to the dock or the pier. So when he says this, he says, you better make really sure that you hold fast what I've given you, what you have so that no one can steal your crown. And he's not talking about material possessions. 
He's talking about spiritual ones. He's not saying hold fast to the house you have and the car you drive and those things. He's saying hold fast to the spiritual blessings, the gifts that I've given you. Verse 12 says this, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. When he says this in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You have to understand the people that he's writing to in those days would have had temples in their city to other unknown gods. When the earthquakes happened, when the ceilings collapsed, when the different things of tragedy and destruction occurred, there would be something that would be noticeable throughout the city in a lot of places. And that would be that pillars still remained. Pillars made of marble or made of different hard rocks and things like that would have been still standing. In fact, if you travel to Alasir today, this city, Philadelphia, the ancient city, you can still see the ruins. If you've been here during any week of our message and I've showed you some pictures of the other temples, you still today can see ruins and you know what you see in almost every one of those images, you see pillars that remain. So Jesus is telling these, these people, these believers, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. This would have been a familiar image to them because they would have understood that pillars are permanent. So God is giving, Jesus is giving these words of encouragement that when you conquer, I will make you a pillar, a permanent structure in the temple of God. He says there that he's gonna give them three names in these verses, verse 12 and 13. And the ESV says this, it says, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. You know, names are identifiers. How many of you had a nickname growing up? Okay, I won't ask you what those were. Um, some of them I'm sure would be funny for us to hear, but names are identifiers and they also communicate relationship. I think about this in terms of what Jesus is communicating there because when you were a kid, maybe your mom did this for you. If she loved you, she probably did. She probably loved you even if she didn't do this, but <laughs> this is a sign, okay? She would put your name on your lunchbox, when you go to camp, she'd put your name on your underwear, okay? Maybe some of you mamas have done that. Uh, she, everything that had to come back to you or belong to you had your name on it so that if it got lost or misplaced, you would know whose it was. This is what God is going to do with us because remember, you are a valued possession of God. If you belong to him, his name gets etched on you. The second name is the name of the city of my God. This is an interesting way for Jesus to talk. He says, the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem. And this communicates to me, and it should to you too, 
that we are citizens in God's eternal city, that we have a place of belonging. He would have been telling the people who were in Philadelphia, whose names had gotten scratched off lists and said, you don't belong here. He was communicating to them, but you have a place with me and you have a home with me in eternity. Heaven is our home. Even still today, we are aliens, travelers here on this world, in this earth. The new Jerusalem will be our new zip code and we will have all the privileges that come along with being citizens in that place. In fact, it's interesting that if you look up the meaning, the Turkish meaning of Alasir, which is the modern day name for the city of Philadelphia, it literally means city of God. And I just think that's so interesting that they are still living with some sort of understanding of this. We have got to understand that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen? In verse 3, he says something very interesting. And he will write on us his own, I said verse 3, I meant number 3. And he will write on us his own new name. Jesus, obviously speaking in first person, he says, my own new name. Revelation 19 verse 12 tells us that Jesus has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. There's a sign of intimacy that we should understand when it comes to names and naming. A sign of intimacy would be that he gives his own name to them. Think about a wife who takes a husband's last name. Think about a pet name that maybe someone who loves you calls you. Uh, my kids would be embarrassed to, to know that I told you this, but I refer to them as sugar booger. Whenever they come in and they ask me something, I say, hey, sugar booger, how was your day? You know, a little sweet, a little salty, a little sticky, won't get away from you. Sometimes it's a problem. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, I don't know. I just came up with it years ago and I started calling them both sugar booger. It's a, it's a term of endearment that only, until this moment, only them and I know, okay? Jesus says he's going to claim us as his own and give us a new name. Give us his own name. If church tradition is correct, the church in Philadelphia did indeed endure through many years of suffering. In fact, for the next 1,200 years after having received the letter from John, the church exploded in growth and they continued to do things that served the purpose of the kingdom of God. In fact, the first churches, if the church traditions and historians are correct, the first missionaries were sent there from, from Philadelphia, were sent to India to found churches there, planting some of the first churches that would have ever happened outside of this area. And they were the ones who did this. So they endured, they pushed through, they were to receive a reward. They are in heaven today, those who did endure, and we can be too. We can meet these believers someday in heaven who were part of the, some of the first missionary journeys that would have happened to India itself. Their faith in God did not die, but thrived, and so did the gospel. This is such an encouragement from the word of God that a church can receive encouragement and no criticism or condemnation. Lord, let us be that church. Let us be like the church in Philadelphia. Worship team, would you come and join me? 
So they didn't allow their faith in God to die, but they allowed it to thrive. Even in the midst of their hardship that they faced, even in the midst of rebuilding. And guess what? They had to rebuild the church as well as their own homes. They endured a lot. They would have endured social issues and and things as well, but they pushed through all of that. When our lives are centered on Christ and when we honor him in the things that we do, when that is the case, God says, I've got a reward waiting for you and ready for you. I want you to stand with me today. The chance is great that you are here today and you have something that you are currently enduring. How many of you have ever endured a tickle fight? Anybody? Can you remember those days? Okay. Or you've given a tickle fight to somebody else? That's not the kind of endurance we're talking about. I'm talking about someone here today is enduring something and you might actually believe wrong about that thing. You might actually believe that God hates you, doesn't love you, and chose to punish you. You might believe that, yes, and it could be true that God is trying to get our attention through the things that we endure and suffer, but more than all of that, God is trying to receive glory and he wants us to be pointed to him in that direction. He wants us to hold fast to his words in the midst of the hardship and the heartache that we face. So what is God calling you to stand tall in the midst of, or to rebuild, or to endure when everything else crumbles around you? What is the situation maybe right now that God is calling you to hold on to him in the midst of the storm? I said this recently with, uh, in another setting, and that was that the understanding of water, if you look throughout scripture, it's really interesting that water represents chaos. It was something that they couldn't master from ancient days until now, it's still something we cannot change. When a storm rises on the sea, there's nothing you can do but hopefully live through it. You can't change the storm, but there is a God who can change the storm. In fact, he's the one who always calms the storm. Job says he's the one, he tells Job, I am the one who has conquered the sea monster. Those things that cause the winds and the waves, I am the one who has authority over those things. I believe with all of my heart, Celebrate Church, that God is the one who's in control and sovereign. So please don't be mad at him. Please open up your heart and your eyes to see that he wants to lead you through every season. I wanna read these words again while you close your eyes. And I'm gonna invite you, if you need prayer for any, anything in your life, we wanna pray with you. And I believe that's really your next step. If you say, Pastor, I am facing something right now that I am enduring, and I'm not sure if I'm succeeding, but I need God's help and strength. Today, get prayed for during this last worship song. I want you to hear these words in Isaiah 43 as you have your eyes closed and you're focused in on this. Hear the words of God the Father to you directly today. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you belong to me. When you pass through the deep waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overtake you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored 
and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. I believe with all of my heart that he's not finished with you yet. If you're still in the season that you're in, that you're begrudging and wishing you could get out of, then turn to the one who can change the season. Keep your eyes focused on him. Father, today I pray that in the next few moments as as the worship team leads us in this last song and as we take the encouragement that was given to the city of Philadelphia, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have strength to endure. Help us to reach out to you for the grace that we need to continue to walk through whatever it is that's our lot in this moment and this season, God, so that we can live to give you glory and honor in the next season. And after this one has passed, Lord, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of every person that hears this message today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may step out for prayer. Miss Meg is over there at that prayer station and I'll be at this one as the worship team sings this last song.